Thank you so much for joining us. A huge portion of California is under a fire alert tonight. The warnings cover 25 million of the state's 40 million people. Around the world, wildfires have been getting more frequent and more intense. Climate change is making the fire season longer, notably in places like California. Last year, almost 2 million acres burned there, which made it the worst year on record. Another explosive fire is burning in Sonoma County's wine country that is north of San Francisco. Homes are destroyed there as well, and thousands had to actually run for safety. That particular fire was the biggest in California this year, at least in terms of acreage. One of the first people to learn about it was a scientist just across the border in Nevada. So I was sitting on my couch in late October, and um, I get a text from somebody at the uh, dispatch, and it said, geysers on fire. Graham Kent operates a network made up of hundreds of cameras in Oregon, Nevada, Idaho, and California. The cameras are located on mountaintops and in towers, and they're remote-operated. So when Graham hears about a fire, he can point them at its source. When the Sonoma fire was called in, that's what Graham did. And the whole screen just filled with white like a solar flare. And I was just like, oh, God. Because I've probably looked at more fire footage than anybody on the planet. Uh, <laughs> and I knew right at that minute we were in trouble. The firefighters thought that, too. They were watching the same feed. They took one look at the fire in the cameras, and they doubled their resources onto it right away. Graham stayed up late listening to the firefighters coordinate on the radio. You could just see how there was this coordinated attempt to get everybody off the mountain. And they were very successful. If you look at all the really rapidly moving escape fires in California in the recent period of time, this is the first one I think that didn't have any fatalities. With wildfires getting worse, can new technology make us safer? I'm Ariel Zimros. This is Reset. Graham Kent's camera network is called Alert Wildfire. But he never planned to do this kind of work. He actually studies earthquakes at the University of Nevada at Reno. I'm supposed to be ready for that one big earthquake that may happen once in your career if you're lucky. In 2003, he found himself in the middle of another kind of natural disaster. I'll start the night before because it was really an early morning event. He was living in San Diego at the time, and he'd gone out with his family for a fall festival. I just remember my wife and I were doing the karaoke to Hey Jude. And we were having a great time, and it was just one of those amazing nights in San Diego because it was probably 80 or something, right? Everything was blissful. And then we woke up around 5-something, and it was still dark, but you could smell the smoke, and there was like a glow. And um, I go out onto our patio, and this big old flake ash comes down, maybe a couple inches by a couple inches, and just lands right in front of me. And I just ran in, and I, and I said to my wife, Stephanie, I said, this is really bad. That fire has to be really close. Graham turned on the TV and switched it to the local news. The newscast said the fire was still 15 miles away. And I was like, BS. <laughs> There's so no way that ash flake that I saw came from 15 miles away. Graham's family evacuated. Later on TV, they saw one of their neighbor's houses. It was consumed by fire. 
Against all odds, Graham's house was completely intact. But behind it... Our whole backyard was just shard black. Like, how does that happen? Now I understand, but at the time it just seemed like it was an impossible thing. Now, Graham was no stranger to wildfires. He grew up in the foothills of the Sierra Mountains, and as a kid, he would watch wildfires in Yosemite. But he'd never seen a fire move this quickly before. This was the canary in the coal mine fire, right? That was the opening salvo of climate change in California. And so Graham got busy. Instead of just waiting for a once-in-a-lifetime earthquake, he started coming up with a system that could track wildfires more accurately. That was a moment that, uh, you know, it changes your life path, I guess, is in the end of the day. Graham settled on cameras. It took about a decade before the technology was advanced enough to make it work. But since 2013, he and a group of colleagues have set up almost 400 cameras in California alone. There's a ton of land to cover, though, so eventually they want to set up a 1,000. And the whole idea behind it is to give somebody at dispatch the ability to see that fire right away so that they can uh, scale up or scale down resources. Graham says the cameras probably saved the firefighters about 30 minutes, which in wildfire time is a heck of a whole lot. Driven by 60-mile-per-hour winds, the fire burned the length of a football field every three seconds. In most places, when a fire starts, you're going to get a 911 call pretty quickly. And so it's less about, oh, wow, we have no clue what's going on, as there's the good intel, the bad intel, and the ugly intel. And you need to winnow that out so you know exactly what's going on and can respond appropriately. With Graham's cameras... Firefighters can figure out where a fire is happening and how big it is a lot faster. But cameras are just one piece. As wildfires get more intense, experts are using newer technology. Of course, they haven't gotten rid of some of the old stuff. You know, I'm not a prevention officer, but uh, I do. I have wore a Smokey Bear outfit quite a few times. <laughs> Sean Triplett works for the U.S. Forest Service. His job is to identify technologies that can help the agency detect wildfires. He told me cameras like Graham's really help, but there's plenty of other tech in use, too. Satellites are taking photos from space, drones are flying above wildfires and tracking their advance, and firefighters are using handheld GPS. That didn't happen overnight. Getting the Forest Service to adopt those technologies took some work. When I first started into my role, I I was probably being as much as an evangelist as I was as a a technology seeker. It was a very frustrating time of my life, to be honest, because there were there were so many things where I'm going, we could do this better. Why aren't we doing it this way? And that resistance makes sense. Firefighting is risky. And when you're out in the field, you have to be able to trust the tools you're working with. You have to be cautious with technology because If we try to deploy or field a technology in an operational perspective and it fails or it has a negative outcome, you'll have a very hard sell the next time around. But over the years, firefighters have seen firsthand how effective those tools can be. In the early 2000s, Sean was working in Alaska, and he remembers what it was like when they started to embrace the use of satellite imagery. We were seeing basically red dots on a map uh, all over Western Alaska. And we would talk to the fire staff and they're like, oh, there's no fires out there. And we're like, well, the satellite's telling us there are fires. And so they would get in the airplane and they'd fly out and go, oh, there's fires out there. So, you know, it was, <laughs> and so we, it was kind of that aha moment where 
after scenarios like that, the thirst started to grow. We want more. We want more. How can we use this to do our jobs better? Fires in California are often caused by aging power lines and other human activity. But in many parts of the country, wildfires often get started by dry lightning storms. And after lightning strikes, it can take days or even weeks for a fire to start, which makes them hard to detect. Still, firefighters are pretty effective. If you took uh, the entire United States and you took all the fires we have, human and lightning-caused fires, we're successful in suppressing and or containing around 97% of those fires, which means we're very successful at finding that fire at a small size, low intensity, so we can um, put firefighters on the ground safely and contain and manage that fire. So the U.S. Forest Service is embracing tech. And whenever that happens, I can't help but wonder what and who is being replaced. That's after the break. We're back. The fires in California are terrifying, but the U.S. has dealt with mega fires before. Steve Pine is a historian at the University of Arizona. I've mostly been a fire historian. That seems like an unconventional area of study. Well, as one critic observed, I may be a demographic of one. As an academic, he's kind of lonely. The only fire department on a university campus is one that sends emergency vehicles when an alarm sounds. Water, earth, air, all have got academic disciplines for them. Fire doesn't. So it, in a sense, it's so common, it just, it just gets forgotten. We don't think of it as having its own history. Wildfires are natural and often helpful. They clear out dead material and rejuvenate forests. Native communities understood this. But European colonizers, by and large, came with the mindset that wildfires are bad and need to be stopped, which isn't super helpful. Because when fires don't happen regularly, the kindling piles up. And so when a wildfire does occur, it's got a lot more fuel to work with. And it's a lot more dangerous. One of the most famous fires this country has experienced happened over two days in 1910. And it's got a name. The Big Blow-Up. The Big Blow-Up is perhaps the foundational story, the creation story for the American way of fighting fire. Three and a quarter million acres burned. That's more than 40 times the size of the largest fire in California this year. But when we had almost 10,000 people being sent out to fire lines in 1910. They're using rakes, shovels, uh, two-man saws, uh, axes. You're scraping fuel away that's on the ground. Pine needles, um, combustible uh, grasses, windfall, whatever is there that a fire burning along the surface will feed on. The U.S. Forest Service had just been founded, and the blow-up hit it hard. It was a, a huge trauma for the Forest Service. It was the first great test by fire. Uh, 78 firefighters in six different incidents were killed during the blow-up, uh, and another 
I think uh, seven civilians are known to have died. The agency had just inherited the National Forest in 1905. It was under political threat. So the fires were seen as a challenge. Can they really do what they claim? Does conservation make sense? Can the government really enact this kind of program? Uh, they had said they could, and now here they are challenged and unable to contain the fires. The big blow-up solidified the idea that all fires have to be stopped in their tracks, and it set firefighting policy for decades afterward. In the war on fire, the Forest Service adopted a strategy of total suppression. It even put in place something called the 10 a.m. rule. By 10 o'clock the day after a fire was reported, it had to be under control. Firefighters would literally parachute into the forest to put fires out. But to do that, they needed to know where the fires were. And so the Forest Service started to build towers, and it put people in those towers who were tasked with keeping watch on the forest. By the 1940s, there were 4,000 fire lookout towers in the U.S. The Forest Service reassessed its approach in the 1970s. Now, the organization understands that sometimes the best thing firefighters can do is nothing. But they still like to know where fires are going down. And so hundreds of the watchtowers are still in use today. Here's Sean Triplett from the Forest Service, again. You know, in certain areas, some of the towers are extremely old. Once they reach a certain state where they're unsafe to man or use, we have to go through a deep commission process. But there are areas of the country where, you know, just due to the remoteness or the, the way that fires are in that area, having a person in that tower and constant observation is critical. Humans still have a role to play here. And really, the job of a fire lookout is unlike any other. You're up on top of this mountain, eight, nine, ten thousand, sometimes even higher up in elevation, and you just have these great panoramic views. You know, it's that, what was it, Walden that went out to his pond? You know, these guys are going out to their tower. So, except for certain spots, fire towers and fire lookouts are on their way out in the U.S. Now, I actually know a fire lookout in Canada, so I called her up to find out what the job is like. Hey, Marina. Hey, Ariel. Hi, how are you? I'm so good. How are you doing? I'm quite all right. Um, it's really nice to hear your voice. Oh, uh, yeah, same. It's always, always <laughs> good to, to connect after so many years. Marina Avros is a musician who goes by the stage name of Marina Marina. I met her a few years ago at a concert she was playing in New York City. We hadn't spoken since, but when I started looking into fire detection tech she came to mind. Turns out, she spent the last 12 summers in a lookout tower in Alberta, Canada. When I spoke to her, she was at the tower. Every day, Marina wakes up in a cabin on the ground. Then she climbs 100 feet up in the air to watch the forest from a box about the size of a small bathroom. Honestly, I am actually pretty scared of heights. There, there will be weeks where I can't even look out my window, like, to look down to the ground. Most days, Marina just watches the forest. But a few times a season, she'll spot something in the distance. A line of smoke. When that happens, she uses a tool called an Osborne Firefinder. This is old tech. It was invented around the time of the big blow-up in the 1910s. It's a metal disc. It's maybe, like, you know, two feet in diameter. It has a map on it. And the map is of the area that I'm looking at. And then on top of that, there is a, a scope. 
When Marina sees smoke, she lines her scope up and takes a measurement of the angle, basically drawing a line between her and the fire. Other fire watchers nearby do the same and share their info. Where the lines cross, that's the location of the fire. There are about 125 lookouts in Alberta. They're basically a retro version of Graham Kent's camera network. Marina is actually part of a long tradition of artists who've spent time in fire lookouts. Folks like Jack Kerouac, who spent a summer writing from a fire tower. I like to be alone. I like nature. I like writing songs. I like creating. And I just, yeah, it just called to me. It's hard sometimes, but I just feel this immense connection to the land. And I, I, I don't know if I could get by anymore without a four-month um, break from society and civilization. She actually does most of her songwriting during fire lookout season, sometimes even from the tower itself. I will, um, I'll do some channeling exercises um, and just write lyrics and sort of just let it flow and then go downstairs and, you know, get at my guitar and sort of try and piece it all together. How, how important is this whole sort of fire tower life to your music? It's essential now. Um, almost maybe in a sense, it's a bit of a crutch. Uh, uh, I, have, I have done some successful songwriting out of tower, um, but I really appreciate being able to say or sing whatever I want out loud and just have no fear of judgment aside from my dog. Given the role Fire Towers play in her music, I wanted to know how she feels about all these new tools, like drones that are being used to detect fires, and if she worries about being replaced. Turns out, she doesn't really. I don't think it'd be a good idea. Why? Why do you feel that way? We're really cheap, super reliable, manual, you know, so not a lot of, like, opportunities for um, mechanical failure. To me, we just sort of we're just part of this network of fire detection. So I just feel like I'm, I'm a part of a bigger picture or, or a piece in the puzzle of, of fire detection. So if they took us away, they would be losing, losing like a really important factor in early fire detection. That said, Marina sees the value of other technologies. A drone would be able to like seriously go in and check out any spot that I can't see, you know, so we can work together as a team. It's you need drones. I think you need, you know, fixed wing detection. I think you need satellite. You need radar. Um, you need lookouts. Everybody. It's we're all in this together. I asked Marina if she'd written any songs about fire and whether she'd play one for me. She recorded this at night from her cabin next to the fire tower. So this is a song called Come Home, and it does have a little bit of fire content in it. It's pretty fun and upbeat. That's it for today's episode of Reset. I'm Ariel Duemros, but you don't have to say it that way. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at ADRS. 
You can also reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. If you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Will Reed, Skylar Swenson, and Martha Daniel produce the show. Our engineer is Eric Gomez. Golda Arthur is our executive producer. Liz Kelly Nelson is the editorial director of Vox Podcasts. The mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme music. And special thanks to Art Chung for helping us out this week. Reset is produced in association with Stitcher, and we're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back on Tuesday. Later, nerds. Hey, hey. <laughs> uh, I hope you guys have the best winter. <laughs>